Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. If you're a fan of Marcus Samuelson, you're in for a real treat. Maybe you know the Ethiopian-born Swedish chef from Top Chef Masters or his fabulous PBS television series, No Passport Required. Maybe you've read his memoir, Yes Chef, or cooked from one of his many cookbooks. If you're really lucky, you've experienced his restaurant, Red Rooster, in Harlem, which is truly a special place. Marcus Samuelson is our guest for the hour. With this conversation, we hope to give you a glimpse inside the famous chef's heart. His latest book took years to write, and it may be his most important. It's called The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. The Rise is a celebration of black excellence in the culinary world. The writer Osai Endelin is a co-author, and her profiles of black chefs, historians, and activists engaged in everyday excellence in the food space makes this collaboration so much more than a cookbook. Later in the show, we talk with Marcus about some of the recipes he created in honor of those profiled in the book. But first, let's get to know Marcus a bit and unpack what he means when he says, black food is American food. It's a line repeated many times in the book, like a chorus composed by this music-loving creative. Marcus Samuelson, welcome to Seasoned. We're so excited to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we're all in our different closets, doing it 2021 <laughs> style, like it's normal. Like, yeah. Chef, are you in a closet as well? I'm also in a closet. Of course you are. <laughs> We're all in the closet, but out of the closet. So I love it. <laughs> yes. Absolutely yes, yes, love yes, it. Yes. Thank you for taking time. There's a lot that we want to try to cover in the few minutes that we have with you. But we'll we'll dive right into just what it means, the reasoning behind making this book as you talk about Black America and Black culinary America. You know, we're all on a journey. Everybody's on a journey. And I felt like after doing the Red Rooster Cookbook, or probably a year before it was done, I felt already start thinking about what's the next book's going to look like. You know, for me, there was, we could do more, much, much more in terms of celebrating Black excellence and how it relates to American food, right? Yes, this food comes out of the Black experience, but it's America's food. And I started to look at other art forms that have done a better job at that. And I started to look at, for example, art, where there are institutions in almost in every major city. And you know, then, where to find black art, the res- residence programs, etc. cetera. Uh, when it comes to music, the black experience in American music is one. You know, anywhere in the world, you can ask someone, do they know gospel? Do they know funk? Do they know hip hop? Do they know rock and roll? Do they know? And people might ask, what period of hip hop do you, do you like? Right? So it's really like insightful. And that doesn't mean you're black, white, Asian or anything. It's just part of who we are. But when it comes to food, we were left with this monolithic idea, which as a black person is highly frustrating because our journeys are not monolithic. So I felt it was important to deal with authorship. Therefore, if you have a better understanding of authorship, memories can now be, you can start having good and correct memories as families and friends. And then once those two are run right, you can also then start engaging with building the right aspirations. Who owns the food? Who's part of it? But authorship, memory, and aspirations are highly linked. 
And if they're not done right, they all become anonymous and then we don't learn anything. Yeah, absolutely. And Chef, I think that one of the things I that strikes me uh, when you talk about that is when you think about Creole food or low country from the Carolinas, this is all food I grew up with in Virginia. And this is 100%, you know, what I consider to be American food. And you're right. Uh, it, it's kind of all one category and it should be. It is. There is essentially five original cuisines in America that is completely linked to the black experience, right? Southern food, you mentioned some of them there with the low country, it's an incredible cuisine that, love that uh, you love exactly. And then you think about Cre one city, one city has two, New Orleans has both yeah. Creole and Cajun, and then the journey of barbecue. So these five highly original cuisines stems and is part of American food, but it really stems out of a African-American narrative. And there's so much to talk about there, so much to celebrate there. Uh, in a country where we have really our own identity around one food doesn't exist because we are a nation that is so multicultural and have many different narratives. The melting pot. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, what's interesting to me is I can remember the last time before the pandemic, I went to um, Red Roost in Harlem and I thought this is a perfect example of the diaspora, right? There was me, this Puerto Rican girl that grew up in New York. I was with my African-American friend who grew up in South Carolina. We heard German in your restaurant. We saw a lesbian couple across the way. Our waiter was a white woman with blonde hair. Like it was just, it was a slice of what America is. And I thought, of course, this is Marcus Samuelson's restaurant. And I know you, you have your own unique identity. You're an American citizen, but you have a multinational identity. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us about how that affects you and how that goes into this book, because I have to believe that it was in your frontal lobe, perhaps, yeah. as you were pouring through it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that as a Black person growing up outside America, America is this beacon of hope. America is this place where Black excellence does exist, you know, and even though it could be portrayed through entertainment or through sports or through various music of, of various ways of storytelling, one understands when we become sort of teenager and of age that there is an everyday excellence too. And uh, it was something that was talked about in my house. Like I remember being like 16, getting Malcolm X from my father, you know, read this book and having discussions with him. And, you know, like, my father was a white dude from Sweden that never took any classes in multicultural relationships. Yeah. But, you know, because of how our family was constructed with us being adopted, my cousins being Koreans, my other cousins being French Canadian, my auntie being Jewish, he worked all over the world. So we had geologists from Japan, from Saudi Arabia staying with us. We had English weeks in our house, which we hated as kids. Well, why are we not speaking Swedish like everybody else? But there was a preparation for the world and it prepared me. But I think also what both my parents did, they did know that the world is very unfair and maybe Sweden. And my father was very clear on that. You will live somewhere else, specifically to me as a black boy. Yeah. Said, one day you will live somewhere else. He didn't know what country, he didn't know what place. Maybe he thought about London, maybe he thought about New York. I don't know. He never told me this, but he was clear on that I would work and live 
outside Sweden. And he was right about that. I think it's interesting to hear some of the backstory. When you were growing up in Sweden, was food an interesting thing to you or was food more, we have to eat because we have to, I'd rather go and read a book or I'd rather go and play sports. Was food always in your blood? I would say a little bit of both. Both my parents grew up very poor. And it's hard to think about Sweden as a poor country, but it was extremely poor. So their identity was out of poverty, but they lived an upper middle class Swedish life. We had two homes. We traveled abroad every year. So poverty wasn't lived in within our existence. But how we were raised were out of that. So it's a very interesting thing to, to sort of like, so what do I mean with that? So when we went to the summer house where my father grew up in a fishing village, it was a very different place because in a fishing village, data hadn't evolved that much. But the way I experienced it, we always ate better when we were there because it was fresh fish yeah. or it was smoked that we pickled or preserved that day. We, there was no supermarket. Maybe you went there to get some uh, vegetables, but the majority of the stuff that you ate there, we caught in the mornings, right? But when I look back on it, yeah, the phones were different there and the TV television was maybe a little bit thicker there, but we weren't, in, we weren't inside anyways. As kids, we didn't experience that. We actually thought the country home was like, wow, this is the real place because we lived right by the water. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I remember again, being a teenager, like 20 minutes before coming to that village, my dad had turned around, he stopped at the same place to pick up gas. And he just turned to me. It's like, no one wants to know about your latest sneakers here now. Like he always had like the la this sort of like city talk with me. It's like, get it away. No one cares. Here's about help your uncles with the boats, right. uh, fix the nets. Like, and you're like, you're 14, 15, and you kind of know the drills at this point. But so with things like that. So in terms of food, it was seafood all the time. That was my steak five, six days a week. When we were in the city, which was the more the majority of the year, great food was not in my house. Great food was at my grandmother's house. Nice. She made everything. Bread, breadcrumbs, made that. You walk into her home, always a soup or a stew going on in the back. There was always a season for something. If it was fall, it was a specific difference. The plums that had fallen down that we were doing jam with versus the plums that went to tart. And you have to know the difference, right? Those were like... You don't know the difference, you get smacked. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> boom. <laughs> and it was these lingonberries. We don't buy lingonberries. Like, that's not out of a furniture store. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you forage that. Nice. And the opposite of now when people say, hey, I'm out foraging. Like, my grandparents, like, if we found a good place for mushrooms in the woods or lingonberries, absolutely you were not allowed to tell anybody. <laughs> so, you know, it's the opposite of posting it on Facebook. So, so yeah. Food was definitely in my life on very different stages, but it was very, very real, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that experience comes through in this book because it's very, it's part personal, right? You bring in your wife and your son and it's part larger than life and not personal because it's not just about you. And I think that anecdote you just told us kind of lays the pathway for, for something that you've accomplished, which is you've gathered so many different voices in this book, which is just, it's remarkable, but it's also so timely. You know, it's not lost on me. I am a card-carrying member of Bon Appetit mm -hmm. magazine, and it was not lost on me when I saw you do that. I call it an episode. It's a magazine. What do they call it? Yes. Subscription. No, 
edition, yes. whatever, issue. in the magazine yes. world. <laughs> issue, thank you. Yeah. The journalist, lost for words. Um, it, it wasn't lost on me that they knew, mm. okay, we have, to, we have to pivot somehow. And so the timeliness of your book, the collaborations in your book, mm. I think resonate with a lot of folks, regardless of their nationality, mm. creed, ethnicity, sexual orientation. So what did you gather from all those collaborations and, and how deliberate were they? Well, I love that you say that it was timely because you were not with me trying to sell the book on the streets in 2016. Uh, no, and, I was uh, not. I was climbing no, I my just, own mountain. But I, I, I needed that energy, though, that you had right there. So we got to go do the next one together. Uh, it, and it's funny because everybody's like, oh, my God, it was so timeless. Like, the only reason also why it came out in 2020 is because we were so delayed. Yeah. That's the truth. I wrote writing to Mike every year, the, the publisher, Michael, we're going to be six months delayed. And he was like, it needs to be a good book. And just to have that support was amazing. And it's happened twice to me, actually, when I wrote Yes, Chef, which we were four years delayed on, four years. Wow. And I remember going to Random House up to the 29th floors and then having Susan, the editor there, she's like, I believe in the book, but it's got to be good. So I've been fortunate, and you have to acknowledge the privilege of collaboration with having people that actually did buy a book that wasn't just a home run, it's just a lot of different things need to work, but they really believed in the project and said, you know what? If you don't think it's where it needs to be, we wait. I also felt like the rise is not a list of who's in, who's not in. Absolutely not. We could have done five the rise. It's more about here is some people that worked and came out of the Red Rooster, but the majority did not. And that's the point. And they live all over the country. So no one can say, well, in my town, uh, we don't have, we don't know where to go for black food or whatever it might be, right? So I was already thinking deliberately about what are the questions going to be. So let's figure this out. Let's go cross from Chicago and down, from New York down to Miami, from Seattle all the way down to San Diego. And then on top of that, list not just chefs, food historians, so show or winemakers. So it's, it's not just cooks and chefs. And then obviously do a look back. So it's past, but it's also very much in the present and future. The oldest member is Miss Leah Chase at 96. And, Rest in um, peace. Rest in peace, absolutely. Amazing, amazing cook. And the youngest member, Patricia Gonzalez, was 17 years old when we started the book. Wow, how about that? And, and this is obviously the book for Patricia that we didn't have when we were 17 going into whatever field we were going into. You're listening to our conversation with the always inspiring Marcus Samuelson. He is the chef owner of Red Rooster in Harlem and many other restaurants in the U.S. and worldwide. You've probably seen him on Top Chef Masters and the PBS series, No Passport Required. Marcus is a philanthropist, too. We're going to touch on his work with Chef Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen. In the early days of COVID, Red Rooster became a community kitchen. We'll talk about that next. We'll also talk about how it's possible to deepen our understanding of one another and of history through food. In many ways, we failed in this country how we engage in race and culture. And the most delicious way to get to know each other is through food. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Chef, restaurateur, and TV star Marcus Samuelson joins us this hour for a conversation about his new book, The Rise. The book is one way to document an oral history and aspire to a present and future where Black excellence in food, whether by chefs, historians, writers, or activists, is acknowledged and celebrated. In our first segment, we talk with Marcus about his motivations for writing The Rise with co-author Osai Endelin. Marcus touched on how important authorship is, the claiming of Black food as American food. We're going to talk about that a little bit more coming up. Marcus calls the book an invitation to a listening party that everyone is welcome to join. We asked Marcus to elaborate a little more on this listening party and how he is using this platform to amplify the voices uh, of people contributing to the conversations around Black food in America. I am so informed by music, like that my parents didn't trust the English teachers, so they gave me like Bob Marley or Fela Kuti, or they gave me like, my mom used to like slap us if we listen to Swedish music, what's the, what's the point? <laughs> and like, you need to listen to like Uncle Bob and Marvin and all of this stuff. Yeah. Like, so it was always around music. That's how we learned about stuff. And it was when we had albums, you have to turn them around. You have to think about it aesthetically. You have to think about font. You have to think about so many words, so many different things. So it was, that's a one whole thing. And then people come to things in many different ways, right? And I feel like in many ways we failed utterly in this country about how we engage in race and culture. This is an invitation to start again. And the most delicious way to get to know each other is through food. And this is how I cook. This is what I'm, I haven't tried before. And truly to think about it, this is a new opportunity. And I thought about it so much during 2020, right? Looking at um, the very sad comedy act of so-called politicians, right? Like they look more like, you know, really amateurs in a, in a, in a comedy play, right? Yeah. Versus actually serious people. And then looking at people, where people's conversation, taking it to the street and collaborating actually. And then I was like, well, what if we all would cook for one another, right? You, for me, it's, it's, this year really showed how a lot of politicians are live such a limited life and creatives live such an open life. Yet we've come to a system where we value the politicians more than we value the creative. When the truth is that the majority of stuff that we actually moves us forward is a blend between creative, technology, lawmaking, and this sort of incredible stew or all of it, that transforms us. It's not one or the other. And I just think that this is an opportunity to revalue and taste each other from a completely different point of view. And I think to that point, and I love the imagery that you conjure with that stew, um, because so much of it is an oral mm -hmm. history, right? Um, you know, you and I have spoken before about, you know, Arroz con pollo is for the Latino community. What a different rice is, yeah. is for, you know, around the world. And what do you think of this idea of bringing back oral history through food? Because I, I just thought of this now because I'm envisioning, right? Right now we're speaking, there's an impeachment trial going on. And what if we got all these people in the room and you cooked for them? Number one, they wouldn't be cranky anymore. Number two, maybe they would see, you know, we, we can come to the table and, and find something. And even just beyond politics, this idea of bringing back the oral history as it pertains to Black excellence, as you say, and the culinary experience, and passing it down 
to folks because I can tell you my 11-year-old would learn much better from an oral history yeah. over a plate of food Absolutely. than his science class where he's like, oh my gosh, you want me to do what? <laughs> yeah. But I think, I, I think oral history is always great because it also helps you to rhythmically, you know, in the Latin word, you have the word muntuna, right? Mm -hmm. That is rhythmically, drumbeat-wise, is differently. And this is such an important thing because through politics, you box into... This is women's vote. This is black people's vote. This is what, what's that? I don't even understand what that means. Even like, it's like completely confusing. But once you hear orally, you start to hear nuances and dialects. And, you know, you start also to understand that a Senegalese person happens to be black, but has a very different starting point on someone that might be Asian American and African American, mm -hmm. or someone that is out of, let's say, Peru and black. And their first languages could be Spanish, for example. Right. That's how we understand. And that's how we understand. You think about what Europe has done. Europe has helped us understand in detail how layered or complex a Greek culture was versus a Portuguese culture. So therefore, there is no confusion that a Greek person should speak Portuguese or that a Polish person should eat the same as someone from Portugal just because the countries are from, you know, start right. with P. You know, like, so in Europe, is this one place where we trade off and we learn in detail. Like, if you ask any American person, they can tell you about the regions in Italy, how the mm -hmm. food is different, about local dishes like pasta bolognese or like dishes that come from southern Italy. Yet, you would ask the same high intelligent person, educated travel person, tell me where low country kitchen come from. And because it comes from race and is connected to slavery, we have decided to unlearn mm. or not focus on it. And that's my point. We failed completely. And if you don't have the right authorship, you can never then have the same memories. And therefore, you can never understand the volume preposition. For example, like Nearest Green came up with a recipe for Jack Daniels. His family got no money from it. Wow. He, got, he didn't even acknowledge for it, right? So not only on a financial side, which is it's a whole sort of like day of conversation on why, right? But also from a value proposition. So there was zero value on working on bourbon then for generational black people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and then you can think about the wealth that has been built on Jack Daniels. And that's why I think something like what Nicole Hannah-Jones talks about on 1619 is so important. What happened is connected to today. And you, you even more, you know, in a different way of looking at it is from Isabel Wickerson stuff from CAST, how it is connected, class, culture, class. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. You're bringing us to school. I was actually just thinking about, I think few people also realize there are a lot of, there were, there was this Chinese migration to Jamaica. So you'll mm -hmm. find a very common name and a surname in Jamaica is Chen. I went to school with a Chinese woman who was born and raised in Puerto Rico. She spoke better Spanish than me. And every time I looked at her, I was like, this is so odd. But it's it speaks to, you know, who we are as a country. I want to get back to the book because mm -hmm. inevitably what you cook and what the contributors in the book cook are really, really delicious. Was there a moment? Well, two things. One, you don't just highlight celebrity chefs, even though you are Marcus Samuelson. You are a household name. People recognize you. They know you but you highlight people who don't necessarily have the same fame as you. Was that by design? When you tell a story, you know, it's important to tell all of it. And cooking is teamwork. And I feel like Usaid 
did such an amazing job of bringing other contributors that did not come out of the Rooster family. And that was important. And um, for me, I'm not ever interested in famous stuff can go and come and, you know, you jump off of a bridge and you're famous. You know, there, there's so little, the, the barrier of enter fame is so low. So I can never be a filter of excellence, right? And it, so for me, it's like, I know these incredible chefs and storytellers, like someone like Donna Pierce, that was the editor for Chicago Tribune forever uh, and eventually became the food editor. How do you measure someone's wealth like that? You know, it's, it's impossible, you know, to, just of know-how, right? How do you, you think about what so much of cooking and black cooking had become was so much part of an anonymous journey that eventually become visible? So for me, it was important to tell all of it. And the, the more, the better. And in the end of the book, we put in 200 Instagram handles of other black chefs because when people ask me, how can I help? I'm like, tell me where you live and I can be very specific how you can help. And the restaurant is not open. But guess what? This is, the, you have a private chef, you have an event, you need anything, you hire this person for that occasion. This is how you can help. Because it's not this lofty goal, right? It's also very specific. And that's what I always feel like when we went into the rice is one journey. Now what's coming out of the rice is a completely different journey. So like, we just launched our fund called Black Business Matters Matching Fund, where we give out grants to uh, black businesses in hospitality because majority of businesses are mom and pop. And the knock at 41%, we know this, right? 41% of black businesses were closed due to COVID. 17% of white businesses were closed because of COVID. This is horrible regardless of race. But the access to comeback and the access to generational wealth or the access to institutional financing looks and feels very different in those communities. So that's why what's going to come out of it is a residence program. What's going to come out of it is grant building. And that's the whole point about having a platform. Chef, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the great work you did with Chef Jose Andreas, uh, an amazing human being when the pandemic first started and I was kind of waiting to jump in there and just be able to say thank you for that inspiring to everybody. And of course, you know, you try to think about things you can do and what you can do to help and what you did with the restaurants and serving uh, first responders and just kind of twisting everything to where you could help was mm -hmm. incredibly inspiring. So as a chef, thank you for that. Well, thank you. I think that first of all, it wasn't me, it was the whole crew, but having March 10th, when I called Jose, and so he said, and just this call when he says, we know how to serve safe, when no one knew how to do that. Yeah. We have gloves, we have masks. And he was so used to being in a completely horrific position, but knew how to calmly walk out of it. Three days later, his crew was at Red Rooster, looked at everything, and we never closed. So for us to close the restaurant and decide to become a community kitchen, I was completely, I couldn't even speak you know, but then they came in and led us and guided us through that. And we got new regulars, these regulars for not bankers or professors or coming from Brooklyn or coming from downtown. This was like community directly in Harlem. And two weeks later into serving 400 people a day, 500 people a day, 800 people a day, the word got out. Our line got wider. Our line got how people came to us. In the beginning was people just walked to us. Now people, we're in front of a bus, bus stop. People came on the bus, have heard about this now. 
people came in their Toyotas to eat with us now. And, you know, so we, in the end, we serve 1,500 people a day. So between October, March 15 and October 15, we served 220,000 people. And although we were officially closed as a restaurant majority of the year, I would tell you 2020 was the most important year for Red Rooster. We still haven't found ourselves like to be back to what you guys know as Red Rooster. We are open, but we're not, it's not the same. Like we don't have the Monday night band. We don't have a big gospel choir. And it's going to take us a literally six months to be or eight months, but I'm, I'm okay with that because it was, it is the most important work we've done. And it takes a minute to sort of like get back to who you are and to rebuild. Yeah, very inspiring. We, we appreciate that. It, was, it really was just to watch the things that were happening. Thank you for that. So, Marcus, I want to go back to the book because we already talked about writing this book with Osai. Her grandmother's pineapple coconut cake, mm-hmm. you should know, is a seasoned staff favorite. Uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but can you, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like mm-hmm. to work with people who have been so influential um, in terms of black voices? Tony Tipton Martin also a part of it yeah well i mean we had there's a couple of people before that you think about dr jessica harris right that i knew from she informed me early on like when i came in the 90s i always bought her books and to be able to have someone like miss dr jessica harris as a sort of like as a leading light in terms of information about our journeys, how it linked to Africa, how it linked to the Caribbean, how it comes back to us. And then being able to work with Tony Tipton Martin, but Usai was also, for me, she was always open to bring new people to the party that I didn't know. And as a chef, this is very different because normally we are fully in control. We know exactly from it, whether it's, sweet potato where we get it and we know that purveyor. So we know everything we think in our space. And here it was like, this is a, I constantly had to remind myself, this is not that. Mm-hmm. Yes, Chef was your book or Red Rooster was your book to tell your journey. This is not that. This is a shared space. And both you wanted and OCE constantly pushed on telling different stories, whether that was Johnny Rhodes or whether that was finding... Um, talking about Adrian Miller in, in, in Denver and so on. So it intellectually stimulated me really was important work because I got to know other sides of the community that I didn't meet through the traditional ways that we as chefs kind of meet, meet each other. We meet each other through events. We meet each other through this circuit that is, is our journey. This was a different way of meeting people. And this was amazing. You're listening to our conversation with Chef Marcus Samuelson. He's with us for the hour. We love when we get to talk to chefs and cookbook authors in great detail about their work and their books. Now, as important as the rise is to chronicle the past, present, and future of black excellence in the food world, it is, as we said, a cookbook. In fact, Marcus calls it a feast. And who doesn't love a feast? After the break, we'll talk about some of the recipes in the book and explore some ingredients like Bene seeds and teff and tiger nuts, which aren't actually nuts at all, guys. They're tubers. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Marisol Castro. We're going to take a short break here. More with Chef Marcus Samuelson when we come back. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're thrilled to have Chef Marcus Samuelson as our guest for the hour. We're talking to Marcus about his new book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. Before the break, we talked with Marcus about some of the people he and co-author Osai Endelin profiled in the book. Just a few examples of black excellence. These are chefs, writers, historians, and activists in the food space. Now, we'd like to dive into some of the recipes in the book. We started with the country-style spare ribs. Those definitely caught our attention. Marcus says he tries to strike balance when inviting people of different backgrounds to cook dishes using ingredients they may not have heard of before. Country-style spare ribs may sound familiar enough to most cooks, but Marcus created this recipe to honor a Los Angeles chef who was inspired by French, Korean, and African-American cuisines. The recipe includes a kimchi-style slaw of pickled greens, pineapple, and papaya. In this cookbook, food familiar to the American palate sits side-by-side on a plate with food of the African diaspora. You'll cook plantains and pickled seafood, broken rice, jollof rice, and ancient grains like millet and teff. There's a lot of what home cooks know and love, and some ingredients you'll encounter for the very first time. When you hit on words that people have heard on before, right? So much about Black Journey is, oh, I'm not sure. I haven't heard that term before, whether it's from Africa straight, like let's say Berberer. But certain words are also common, and it comes out of the Black space, and no one has a clue about it. So finding this balance between talking about barbecuing, talking about ribs, talking about igusi seeds out of Nigeria. And people are like, what should we call them? I said, we need to call them igusi seeds because what we learned about Japanese food, I'm so grateful for the journey of what we learned about nori and different soys. And we're learning about Korean food now, kimchi, kojujan, all of this stuff. And what we learned about French and Indian and so many other cultures. We need to do the same sort of uncomfortable journey, but it can't just be done with brand new words to us. It has to be with some comfort that's this balance, right? Again, it's like music. You, you bring people in with something that is more familiar. And then on the B side, you can really bring in your music, right? Like, or what your rhythms or whatever that is. And it's the same thing with this book. It's a constant push and pull between West Africa and how much of that we can sort of sneak into the pantry, but also with comfort stuff that, oh yeah, I've had that dish before and I know how to make that. Because uh, otherwise I think we would lose the reader and the cook in the book. Looking at some of these recipes, and as a chef for 25 years myself, one of the ones that really stood out to me, I said, what, what is that? Broken rice. Uh, there's a recipe. Mm-hmm. It's a golden coconut broken rice with a tamarind glaze on the halibut. It just sounds absolutely outrageous. Yeah. I love it. Can you talk about broken rice yeah. to me a little bit? Absolutely. That term, what is that? I just think it's so important because Don Davis, actually the new executive editor at um, Bon App, she has an incredible way of sit, talking about what is that? If someone said, what is that? Excited? Uh-huh. That person wants in the way you said it. Yeah. Or what is that? You know what I mean? It's the same term. And again, <laughs> that's to your point about orally, it's so important, right? The delivery. So that, that level of curiosity that you asked that question is exactly, those were the questions we wanted to say. So broken rice is really, you know, our rice came here through West Africa to the Carolinas. And the broken rice was considered the bad rice, right? It was the broken rice that the slaves got. But their brilliance in cooking, that's really essentially when you think about grits and rice grits, right? So that broken rice becomes a little bit easier to chew and has a little bit different texture. So when you think about a grits, 
it eats like that. Or when you think about a version of a jambalaya, for example, that can eat a little muddier, a little grainier, but I love it. Out of the Carolinas in the low country, there's tons of broken rice and very often served as broken rice grits. Super easy to cook, delicious. And with this dish, we kind of want to add this tamarind glaze that gives you that sweet and sour, a little bit ginger soy into it. But the broken rice is really the, the key ingredient in that recipe. What do you think people can get broken rice? Is it something we actually can buy? Sure. No, absolutely. Depending where you live, if you live in a bigger city, any West African market. So in New York, it would be come to the Bronx or come to Harlem. And then it could also be, uh, and sometimes you have to go this back backwards way of making it. You can also take beautiful long grain rice and crush it. Okay. Right? Just crush it in a blender just to try that out because that's essentially what it was. It was the, the rice that didn't make into these nice long grain baskets and, and it was the leftover pieces of that. So absolutely. Wow. I am going to try that tonight. Yes. And when you think about it, broken rice, if let's say you make a rice salad, toast broken rice, now you get, and in the last 20 minutes, add a little bit of, let's say, brown sugar to it. Then you get that crunchiness that you get out of rice. You add that into, let's say, kale salad or something like that. Now you have a completely different eat on it. Minus all, broken rice is in my repertoire now, for sure. I got to try that. Done. Done. That's it. What I've been trying to add to my repertoire is injera. Nice. Am I pronouncing it yeah, correct? Yeah, good job. Correctly? Beautiful. Because I, I decided, um, you know what? There's so many different flowers mm-hmm. ever. There's wheat flower. There's buckwheat. There's, mm-hmm. I bought garbanzo flower, mm-hmm. all sorts of And then I came across teff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what in the wide world of sports is mm-hmm. teff? And I keep coming up with these recipes for injera. Mm-hmm. So first of all, tell us what it is mm-hmm. and how that. can I make it and not screw it up? Well, first of all, I think it's great that you're interested in different flowers, right? Because it's also a gluten-free flower. It, well, that, that was yeah. the impetus, yeah. Teff has been around probably... Since the time before re- time. Well, about, I want to say 3,500 years longer than America. So okay. uh, it is one of the oldest grains in the world. Teff grows everywhere in Ethiopia. That's really a staple, right? It's literally what rice would be maybe in India or, you know, noodles in an Italian a part of the world. So it's dark gray. And then to make injera, you basically just take water and teff and you put it very often in a plastic bucket and you wrap it up and you let it sit overnight. And then it's going to start to ferment. And when you come back to next day, you just add a little little bit more lukewarm water. You mix that up and you want the batter to look like a crepe batter. And then you take a nonstick pan on medium heat, put a little bit of oil into it, just a little bit. And then you, you make it like a crepe, but you only cook it on one side, which means so, so it gets its bubbly side and you, you put a lid on it for maybe like three minutes or so. These sourdough, because that's what happens when you get a soured fermented pancakes, this is everything to Ethiopian culture. It's eaten dried when you need, kids need snacks coming back from school. It is a currency in a way because it's the only thing you can count on that you always have. You have chickpea flour. You talked about that earlier that you boil with water, it's called shiro, and you have always injera at home. I'm going to tell my children that you said that when they look mm-hmm. at me with a side eye yes. <laughs> and say what yes. Chef Marcus yes, yes. Samuelson yeah. said. This yes. is currency. Yes. Thank you for that. But you come from the great <laughs> I mean, you have roots in from PR. Puerto Rico. Yeah, I so, know. so we, we, we talked long and hard mm-hmm. about the 
mango and we talk mm. long and hard of mm. or, you know from dominican and puerto rico and we go away Sancocho yes and all, that mess. and all of this stuff so you come from a mm. great food culture from from good stock yes, yes thank you i appreciate it <laughs> we also you have um a recipe for some croissants yes of sorts what mm. is happening there walk us through that well one of the opportunities here was to understand the complexity in our journeys, right? And I, I'm so excited that we have these massive opportunities to tell complex stories. And every time we can do it, we should. So now the world is learning that you can be both African-American and Asian-American. Right. And oh, by the way, you're female and you're going to be the vice, you are the vice president of the United States, right? But that is an important thing because that shows. So, so when you talk about Eric, this in the book, Eric, Chef Eric, who worked in some of the best restaurants in the world for 30, 40 years. Talk about an anonymous journey into visible. Eric happened to come from the French-speaking Caribbean. He worked in Paris. He married a woman that has Japanese background. So what's happening here? Whoa. He's Caribbean. So, of course, curries and Caribbean ingredients are right in front of him. But he spent a long time in France and making croissants. And he's also spent a long time in New York City. Wow. And his wife is Japanese. So for me, it's like, do not ever think you know a food or a person without spending some time with that person. So Eric represents these four channels of excellence that uh, we need to hear more mm. about. And another person that tells us stories so greatly too is Naisha Arrington in the book. She happens to be from LA. Her grandmother was Korean. Yeah, her father's side is black, and she grew up in K-Town, speaking Korean. And when you see her today, she's a black girl from L.A. There's an amazing chef. So don't ever decide before you know this person who, what the narrative are, where they came from, and how, how you got in front. It's just a privilege to meet other people, you know? We talked. Uh, we started this whole conversation by talking about America, a melting pot, so many cultures there. That story alone, I mean, that sums up all of it. That's amazing. I got to ask you mm -hmm. another question, another food question, Chef. Um, tiger nuts. Can we talk about that? The new kale? Yeah, yeah. What you learn in the book also is that there's very little new food. There's, new, there's different words that's been around forever. And depending where you are in the world, that might be new to you. And what we are so often used to in the West and in America specifically, anything that is new to us, we assumed is new. And it's actually the opposite. We are a very young country. Right. And because we such a big country, very often we're limited to our connectivity to the rest of the world. So there's many ways to be connective whether it's through spirituality or language or so many different ways. So when something like Tiger Nuts has been around forever, but when no one has a clue what it is here. And that is the mystique and what we want to highlight that comes out of Bene seeds. We talk a lot about these sesame seeds, the Bene seeds. We talk a lot about jollof rice, which is really the first jambalaya, for example. We talk about fermented shrimp, fish sauce, because when you think about fish sauce, you always think about Southeast Asia, or maybe even 10 years ago, you didn't know, most people didn't know what fish sauce was. Yeah. But I mean, it's not just a concept, fermenting seafood is a concept that most culture had to deal with. So it, this is an opportunity to get a lens that is wider than 
the narrow lens that we've been told. And I just think that's the opportunity. That's where we're like, hmm. And that's why you think I, think, again, I go back to musicians, great musicians. They don't at all operate based on borders or, or any of that stuff. It's like, if you want that sound, you go to that person, you know? 100%. Chef, it's funny you bring up musicians because I tell people when I do demos, I've been a guitar player my whole life. Yes. And I tell people when I do demos, you know, in front of the crowd or, or even a small demos that we're doing now on Zoom, cooking food's like playing guitar. There's not a lot of notes you're going to play that haven't been played before. It's how you put them together. Yeah, and it's also, you don't, even, even the term you said there, right? I don't think any of the demos you're going to do is going to be small because you have no clue of the impact it's going to have for the other person. Right. You probably transformed somebody that you had no clue you transformed because you took the time to creatively engage with them. So keep doing your demos, but don't call them small. <laughs> or you can call them small. But, you know, you know it's what? just a thought. I can't wait to go tell my wife that Marcus Samuelson just said any demos I do are not small. Oh, jeez. They're not because on the... <laughs> well, well I, I tell you an example. I did a demo at a school at Culinary Institute of America and this young student asked me a question. This is like 20 years ago. You just taught us about Japanese food. You taught us about Swedish food. What about African food? Yeah. And I had no clue. You know, I was in front of 500 students and I felt so good about my demo. And I'm like, mentally I was stuttering and I was really struggling. And I'm like, get me off the stage. And I had to realize that I have a lot of work left to do. And this student completely transformed my life. And after that, I went back to Africa. I cooked, I learned, I studied. I did another book called The Soul of a New Cuisine. And the journey of Red Rooster would not have happened without these mm -hmm. questions. So the moment you're going to get transformed is not based on the crowd size. It's based on how it impacts you. We just had that interview. We just did an interview, Chef, with uh, Hawa Hassan. And I had the same, at 25 years as a chef, uh, we were talking about African cuisine. And I realized, man, mm. I don't know a lot about this. And I need to know more. Mm. So I've been reading. Yes, good. Awesome. Yeah. But, but you, you're, doing, you're doing the work. You're, like, you, you, you're putting yourself in unfamiliar spaces. And maybe it's uncomfortable. But what a great, exciting journey you got in front of you. Like, that's it's awesome. So fun. So fun. Yeah. Food's so powerful, Chef. So powerful. Since you've mentioned music, I have a very random question. Do you play any instruments? Are you musical, Mr. Marcus Samuelson? Uh, I don't play an instrument well enough, but I, I mean, music has been, I, it's, it's in my life. It's like where most of my friends are musicians, the way we came up was through music. Do you have uh, music on in the kitchen when you cook? <laughs> uh, at home, always. I mean, chef knows like prep time, you can have music on. And then once right. that's over, then it becomes that five minute argument, you know, like you got it, you know, and then it's off. And then after service is done, you put it back on again. Like it's music is, it's one of, of, of being part of a restaurant, mm -hmm. you know, and we obviously have through our music program at Red Rooster, we have, you know, December, you know, normal year of Red Rooster, we 180 staff plus 70 musicians. So it's 250, we're a tribe of 250 people to make that work. That's incredible. That's incredible. Chef, my trick to get people to come to work on time used to be whoever gets here first can pick the music for prep There time. you go. There you go. And, and that's like a big deal for a young cook coming up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, you have no rights to change fantastic. it. Like, absolutely. Every chef knows. Hey, you want to change <laughs> yeah. it? Get here first. Yeah, get it first. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. 
Wow. Chef, what an inspiring conversation. It really, truly has been. I appreciate all of the words you've given us. And this book is incredible, the stories that it tells. Thank you so much for having me. And next time we do this, hopefully we can do it with also having lunch and breaking bread mm-hmm. together from the rice or cook together. All right? Exactly. I would, it would be fantastic. Chef, I look forward to seeing you at Mohegan Sun again. Hopefully Absolutely. next year we'll be there. There you go. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Marcus. Good to see you guys. Thank you. That was Marcus Samuelson. He is the chef and owner of Red Rooster Harlem and many other restaurants nationally and worldwide. He is a philanthropist, a PBS television host, and an author. His latest book celebrates black excellence in the culinary world, and it's called The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. It was co-authored by prolific food writer Osai Endelin with recipe work from Yawande Komolafe and Tammy Cook. You can celebrate some of the honorees from this book, just as Marcus has. Go to ctpublic.org slash season to get recipes for Aaliyah Chase's gumbo and pitmaster Rodney Scott's ribs with baked cow peas. You'll also find a recipe for a gorgeous broken rice peanut seafood stew, which Marcus created to honor Dr. Fred Opie. He's currently a professor of history and foodways at Babson College in Boston, Massachusetts. Google him. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening. See you next week.